speaker, Greg Cook of USI Affinity. Hi, good morning, everybody. Uh, thanks again for uh, joining me this morning. Um, hope everybody is staying safe during this unprecedented time with the COVID-19. So um, let me just introduce myself again real quick. Greg Cook, Vice President at USI Affinity. We are the endorsed broker for the Boston Bar Association. So today in today's webinar and seminar, what I will be discussing specifically is professional liability insurance and what exactly you will need to know with regards to it. So again, if there are any questions immediately, please ask them through the Q&A. Throughout the webinar, I will try and check as frequent as I can, um, but I may not be able to answer some of the questions till the end. I do have a lot of material to go through, so hopefully a lot of those questions will be answered throughout the seminar. So, pardon me for a second. Uh, that does not seem to be working. There we go. Okay, sorry about that. All right, so to uh, so today's agenda, this is what we'll, we will be discussing, specifically the policy itself. I'm gonna go through some claim statistics that are important, especially to different types of areas of practice. So, um, you know, if you fall under some of those areas of practice, you may be surprised by that, uh, you may not be. I'm gonna talk about claims made and reported, what that exactly means, and, you know, the familiarity around that versus occurrence-based. I'll go through who is insured within a policy. Obviously, I wanted to add a specific, a, a couple different slides here with regards to COVID-19 and what I believe and what we believe at USI will have some impacts on professional liability insurance or malpractice insurance. I'll, I'll finish up today's webinar with reviewing, you know, do I feel policies are the same? Then going through selecting appropriate coverage and selecting a carrier. Some of the things to take note of with regards to if you are starting a practice, looking at this type of insurance or you are looking to change coverages. So let's get started. So this slide here is important, right? These are claims by areas of practice. So you may be, you're probably automatically looking for your type of area of practice, where do you fall? Now keep in mind, this chart is, is based specifically off of frequency of claims, okay? Not severity. If it was based off of severity of claims, really in terms of size, this would look a lot different. You'd probably see a lot more intellectual property, patent type work, securities type work, uh, even entertainment of high values, things of that sort. So again, this is frequency. So you'll see, you know, real estate is up there, family law, personal injury is always one of the top, top areas of practice. Real estate has taken, um, it took a hit during the financial crisis and the real estate bubble. Um, you know, so unfortunately those claims increased, they are taking a dip down, fortunately for real estate attorneys, but it's still one of the higher areas of practice. One over the past few years, literally just the last two or three years that we've seen a tremendous uptick in claims is you'll see WTE that stands for wills, trusts, and estate. All right. Um, if you asked me if this chart would look a lot different about five years ago, that would probably be about 
of the makeup of this chart. As you can see, that's more than doubled over the past few years. And sorry, I forgot to, to mention this. This study is done by the ABA and they, just, they run through this with multiple carriers across the country to obtain this data. So what happens is once they obtain this data, they put this all together. They do this over a five year period of time. All right, they don't do this every year. So as I mentioned, the last study was from prior years. This is the most recent, and this dates back to 2019 at this point. All right, so very, very, very recent. But the prior study, like I said, Will's Estate Trust was more less than half of what it is now. A big reason for that is really due to the fact of that we're going through the largest transfer of wealth the country has ever seen, okay? A lot, uh, another component to this is there's a lot of broken families. So, you know, a, a husband and wife married, have kids, they separate, start different families, and, you know, now the estate is left for the new family the old family, the, the children from the previous marriage are unhappy with regards to this. So even though all the, the T's are crossed, I's are dotted from the attorney's aspect, there's still we still see a lot of, of claims coming out from those, those type of situations. So even though there may not be a payout in terms of losses, there's still they, those claims still need to be defended. Okay, so unfortunately, for that type of area of practice, we've seen an uptick of that. And again, like I said, the largest transfer of wealth, the reason with regards to that is we're seeing a lot of higher dollar amounts with regards to estates. All right, so in years past, it would be in the hundreds or low millions of dollars. Now we're seeing tens of millions of dollars, if not more in that type of work. So not all area, excuse me, not all carriers are looking to write that type of, of practice due to these claims they're seeing, okay? So again, staying related to this, this is specifically to frequency of claims. So this is based by um, claims by size of firm. All right, you will see that majority of the claims come from one to five attorney firms. So you're looking at 66% of claims coming from one to five attorney firms. Now. That may be a haunting statistic as you're hearing me speak and a haunting statistic as you're looking at this. But what I will tell you is majority of law firms across the country are one to five attorney firms. They make up about uh, estimated a little over 75% of the makeup of law firms across the country. So with the amount, it kind of goes hand in hand. So with the amount of law firms that size, claims come with it. So that's how that works. Again, if I flip this around and it was based off the severity of claims, it would look a lot different, right? You would see a lot, the 100 plus law firms would make up majority of this chart, same with 40 to 99 attorney firms. As I can oblige to that, as I've seen that with some large firms that we've worked with in the past, um, you know, we see some of their claims and they are enormous. I'll kind of, I'll, I'll burn through these next two slides. So specifically, this is by type of error. Just want to point this out. Most of the time, the claims come from preparing and filing documents. Simply put, you can see 32%. That's where majority comes from. That's always been the case. This chart looks eerily similar every time they do this study. 
this rarely changes. Okay. And same with this one type of alleged error. So majority of claims over 50% of them come from substantive errors. What that means is simply just not knowing the law. I'll talk about this a little bit later on, but one of the issues that apply here with terms of claims, because carriers review these, they, they review their claim statistics, obviously, right? And that's how they underwrite appropriately based off of your rates and such. So when they see statistics like this and they see that errors come from law firms simply just not knowing the law, they become afraid of firms that quote unquote, do what's called dabbling, meaning you do all different types of areas of practice. You're a three attorney firm and you take in every type of case out there. That's problematic to a carrier because they look at it as how does each one of those attorneys know the ins and outs of all of those different types of areas of practice. So the probability of a claim coming out of a situation like that is much higher, again, specifically to this chart, okay? So let's keep moving on here. So professional liability insurance, right? You may or may not be familiar with it. Now, one of the biggest components to this coverage that makes it different from others that we're used to is they're what's known as claims made and reported policies, okay? We're used to what's known as occurrence-based policies. That's your home and auto, uh, excuse me, that's mainly your home and auto, your general liability, things of that sort. So in a case of an occurrence-based, if you're in a car accident, let's say a, a small fender bender, unfortunately, and you have coverage, coverage applies right then and there, right? You report the claim and you're covered. The difference here with claims made and reported is you could make an alleged, you, you can have an alleged error that occurred and you may not be sued for that error for two years, three years down the road, as long as it's within the statute of limitations, which is typically five years, okay, for, for different types of cases or for majority of cases. So in that regard, what happens is claims made and reported policies, what, you, what needs to happen is you need the coverage in place when the error occurred, when the claim was made against you, and ultimately when you report the claim to the carrier, all three of those components, okay? So you can see some of the language here, you'll see with no gaps or retroactive date. So what happens is when you first obtain coverage, you're now covered from that date going forward for the work that you are providing under that law firm. Anything prior to that date of that policy in effect, you would not be covered for. So let me just give you an example, a hypothetical, All right? I'm a new, uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, an attorney, I'm looking to start a new firm. I have no coverage. So what happens is I want to obtain that coverage right before I start actively working with clients. Okay. So for example, let's say today's date is 4-23, April 23rd, 2020. All right. If I have the coverage put in place today's date, I'm now covered from today going forward. If I started practicing two months ago, and I made a mistake in March of 2020, but I didn't obtain coverage until April 23rd, 2020, I would not be covered for that error that happened, okay? So for that same example, let's say I started practicing in fe February. I obtained the coverage in April. I made an error 
in March. I was sued for that error next year in April, 2021, okay? The carrier would decline the coverage because the error occurred prior to obtaining your policy. Your retroactive date would show at that time, 4-23-2020, okay? Same example would apply if, you're, if your retroactive date is 4-23-2020 and you're practicing for the next five years and you're looking to change coverages and the carrier asks, what is your retroactive date? You then provide my retroactive date, excuse me, my retroactive date is 4-23-2020. So what happens is anytime you change coverages, change carriers, excuse me, you, they're, they're picking up the prior year's exposure. So all prior five years of the coverage, okay? So that's what's very important with these claims made versus occurrence-based policies. I can't uh, emphasize that enough. And the next slide is specific to prior acts coverage. That the, what claims made and reported means and what retroactive date and prior acts means to a firm is imperative. This is the most important component to a professional liability policy, okay? Again, any, when you first obtain the coverage, that now becomes your effective date, but it also becomes your retroactive date. So what you wanna happen is every time renewal comes around, their annual policies, you wanna, you wanna continuously renew that coverage. Anytime you do not renew that coverage and there's a lapse in coverage, you basically paid for that policy for no reason. Because what happens is once you have a lapse and you decide you no longer wanna pay for that coverage, there's no, there's no coverage actually applied. So let me just give a quick example. Again, you obtained the coverage today, 4-23-2020. You're practicing for the next year. Next, uh, you know, April comes around next year. You decide, I don't need the coverage. I don't want to pay for it. It increased, what have you. So you start, you continue to practice without the coverage. Then comes summer of next year. You're practicing. You now no longer have this coverage in place. And you're sued for an error that occurred the summer prior, right? So you think automatically, well, I had the coverage in place when that error occurred, so I'll be covered. Unfortunately, no, because now you no longer have that coverage in place. It needs to be continuous coverage for the coverage to apply. As I mentioned before, three, three things need to occur. You need to have the coverage in place when the error occurred, when the claim was made against you, and when you report the claim to the carrier, okay? All three of those things rarely happen all within one year. It's usually years down the road. So for that same example, that's why it's imperative to continuously to renew coverage, all right? And you can see changing carriers. I hinted towards that, basically the changing of carriers, what needs to happen is anytime you change carriers, which you do have the ability to do, anytime you do that though, you wanna make sure that new carrier is picking up your firm's retroactive date, okay? If the pricing is, is too good to be true, most likely it's too good to be true. That means that they, they provided you a quote that is not picking up that prior acts coverage, okay? Something I do wanna point out here also, since we're talking about changing carriers and, and coverage, something to keep in mind is pricing. Okay, the first year of coverage is your least expensive because again, there's, there's little exposure. 
But what happens is each year you renew your coverage, the premium does increase incrementally. And it increases incrementally because the actuaries figured out, well, the chances of now that you're practicing an error occurring increases, right? You're taking on more clients, time is going by, and then they're within the statute of limitations. So now they have the ability, you're working on those cases, they have the ability to file that claim against you for an error that occurred, okay? So again, that's very important to know. That terminology is called step rating. That's what carriers and us in the business call uh, or, or give that name to uh, or define that as. So step rating is exactly that. Incremental increases in your premium from the date you first obtained the coverage. And it goes on for the first five years of the practice of the coverage. After that, it basically starts plateauing at that point in price, okay? Barring making sure, you know, it, obviously if everything stays the same. So let's continue on here. So under the policy itself specifically, you know, who is insured? Pretty straightforward, obviously the name insured, and then you can see I have question marks next to all of the next bullets, you know, shareholders, partners, employees, former employees, et cetera, et cetera. The answer to all these questions is yes. Okay. One I do want to point out is former employees slash former partners or former attorneys, any, any type of any specific employee within the firm. Now, what happens is those, anyone that's working on behalf of the firm is covered under the firm's policy while it's in existence. So if they, if a, let's say it's a two attorney firm and one of the attorney and, and it's in practice for 10 years and one of the attorneys decides to leave the practice, what would happen at that point is you notify your broker and the carrier of that change. But what happens is that attorney that practice with in, within that firm for the last 10 years is still covered while well, for those 10 years while they were practicing with that firm. Okay, so any errors that occurred while practicing under that firm name, they would be covered within that policy. Once they leave that firm and they start practicing elsewhere, the new cover, uh, excuse me, the, yeah, the new coverage and the new work would not be covered under the previous policy. Only what's covered under the previous policy is any work that they did while employed under the firm. Okay, so very, very important to know but I get that question a lot, especially from attorneys that are leaving a practice. They're fearful of, well, I need coverage for the time I worked at the employer I'm leaving. No, because the, the new coverage will not apply to prior coverage. The employer that you are working with, if they have a policy, you're covered under that time spent working with that, that law firm. The new coverage is going to apply for the new firm with uh, a new policy, all right? So let me just take a second, make sure there's no specific questions. Nope. Okay, so let me keep, continue on. So obviously, you know, we're in a very, very difficult, different, unprecedented time with COVID-19 pandemic, okay? Uh, a lot of different scenarios happening within all different types of businesses out there. It's a trickle effect with everything. All right. Now, the good thing and bad thing with legal malpractice is 
the effects are not going to be as heavy hit like they will under other types of property and casualty policies, like your general liability and maybe your umbrella policies, things like that. But what we are anticipating, and, and I say that because there's really no coverage specifically for a situation of a pandemic and legal malpractice is covering you for legal services. It's not covering a, a law firm who is now out of business. You know, it's not covering for that type of work, you know, for um, lost revenue, things like that. It's covering you again for claims arising out of legal services that you provide. All right. Now on the flip side, what we do anticipate years down the road are a few of these things. We do anticipate an increase in potential malpractice. LPL stands for Lawyers Professional Liability Claims. Pardon me for, for using that acronym, but it's Lawyers Professional Liability Claims, also known as legal malpractice. So we do anticipate that. And for the next bullets, these are the reasons why, right? We anticipate some of the statute of limitations being missed. Some of the pending litigations that were occurring that a firm was working on based on you know motion deadlines discovery deadlines all reasons because you may not have been able to access files ability to meet with a client um you know doing depositions right doing them over the phone is a lot different than in person a lot of different scenarios that we that we feel are reasons that could occur right um i feel like a lot of the scenarios that we've seen recently have gone fairly smoothly and a lot of the courts have worked appropriately with handling these scenarios, but nonetheless, you know, we do still anticipate some of this occurring for sure. The next component I mentioned a little bit earlier is dabbling, right? So you saw the, the statistics before that when a firm is working on all different types of areas of practice and they do not know certain areas of practice, but they take them on anyway to try and grow their business, that's where a lot of times law firms get hurt because that's where a lot of claims come from. So we anticipate during this period of time where a law firm may be hungrier than before trying to obtain business and stay afloat, they may start now working in, in areas of practice that they may have not have worked in before, right? Causing again, those concerns of, do they really know that type of practice? So again, dabbling, you know, and I have here, not like, unlike any other economic downturn, right? We've always seen this at any time that there's an economic downturn, obviously everyone starts trying to figure out different ways to bring in revenues. This is one of the reasons, not saying that this is a bad thing, but what I would say is you want to make sure that the new area of practice that you're looking to obtain or the new clients you're bringing in, you really know what you're doing in terms of that type of practice, you know, the deadlines, the statutes, things of that sort. Because again, like I mentioned, that's where a lot of law firms get in trouble. The other component to this that we feel on top of the claims increasing for a few different reasons, we also see uh, increasing claims from suing for fees. Okay. Now, a lot of times what happens is what we've seen statistically, when a firm sues a client for fees, it's about 50%, actually sometimes a little bit over 50% of the time, and this is statistics, that a counterclaim comes. Meaning they now are suing you for some type of malpractice within the firm. 
Now, this is problematic because, again, you're kind of playing, you're kind of gambling here that 50-50 shot that if I sue this client, they're going to sue me or they're not. So you may have not have seen that, excuse me, you may have not have seen that statistic before, which is why I'm pointing it out here. Um, so that's very important to know. Now, you know, we're, we're not in the business of telling our clients how to run their business. So, you know, but we do feel that suing clients for fees can be avoided in, in certain, in certain capacities, right? We always want to make sure we're keeping those fee suits down or not at all, because again, we know this statistic and when there's a counterclaim, regardless if there's an actual ends up being a loss, it still needs to be defended, right? And then I have pointed out there potential reputa reputational damage could apply as well, because if you do get hit with a counterclaim and there actually ends up being some teeth to it and there ends up being a loss, right? Now that hurts the, the firm even more. So again, we, we see this possibly occurring just due to the fact, again, that revenues, everyone's seeing revenues decrease due to this, this pandemic and businesses being shut down. Um, so unfortunately we see this. So one thing I, I wanna point out, I don't have it on my slides, but these are just a few reference points in terms of risk management tips to take in terms of suing for fees. Um, first thing is you wanna make sure that your counterclaim, that, that a, suing a client for fees, that there's not a counterclaim exclusion within your policy, okay? This is important to know because I have seen over the past couple of years, carriers add this exclusion into policies. So you wanna make sure that you're checking with your broker or reviewing it yourself. Hopefully you're working with a broker who understands this type of practice and, and specializes in legal malpractice insurance because they would be able to tell you right, off, right, right away. Another thing to keep in mind is you wanna check your deductible. Right, if you're gonna sue for fees, is that gonna hit now your deductible? Is it even worth suing for fees if you're gonna end up paying a $5,000 deductible? Right, something to keep in mind. Uh, another tip would be try to get upfront retainers. All right, easier said than done, but you know, if, if um, you know, construction and plumbing and those type of businesses can all do that, I think law firms can can do that as well because if you think about it a lot of times if you're doing if you're getting construction work done let's say your kitchen remodeled you have to put up you know a third of the cost or even a half of the cost some of the times um you know unfortunately law firms do not take that practice as much as other industries and then um you know you may want to reevaluate the, the your your fee right um you know cannot recover excess fees and remove, reduce the amount accordingly. You know, another thing to keep in mind, you know, if you are in a situation where you're owed fees, you know, maybe you can reason with that individual to work out a different amount um, or a payback period, things of that sort to avoid, again, suing for fees, right? A lot of, we have all these risk management tools and tips that we provide for that reason, because again, we're fearful that we, you know, we, we see the, the counterclaims come through. So we wanna make sure that, you know, our clients and, and individuals are avoiding those type of scenarios. Okay, let's uh, continue here. All right, so 
Um, I just want to, I put these on here. I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but you know, these are some definitions that I feel are important within a policy. You know, I pulled this language from, from different policies. So basically, you know, I understand that, you know, when you buy, nobody likes to buy insurance, right? And, but, but I will tell you, buying your malpractice insurance policy is very, very important. We've seen it time and time again on our end, you know, some of the claims that come through or some of the unfortunate events, you know, if a firm felt like they had coverage or they had a lapse of coverage, you know, just situations that really hurt the firm at the end. But when you do obtain the coverage, what I would say is, you know, I know most of the time attorneys and law firms are not not reading, you know, the 15 page policy, if not more pages than that with a fine tooth comb. But some components that I would point out is you want to look at these, you want to look at your definitions. You want to look at some of the conditions. You want to look at exclusions. Exclusions typically stay uh, the same throughout policies, but like I mentioned, some have that fee suit exclusion. So you want to keep, keep an eye out on that. But definitions, like I said, this is important because there are some that change from, from time to time. Um, but you know, here we are just insured loss. You know, that's exactly, that's what is being covered within this policy, right? There's gotta be a demand for money or for the money for services. And that's where the loss actually comes from. So you'll see there claims expenses, you know, claims expenses is specific to the defense costs that apply to your policy limits for, you know, the defense counsel that is working on that claim. All right, so that's important to know where that's actually coming from. And then professional services, right? This is where there's a lot of language specific to it, but that's where it'll tell you, you know, previous employers, um, a lawyer act providing notary public services, like things like that. Some of those change from policies to policies, but most of the time they're pretty straightforward. But if you're in a different type of practice and you need specific language, Obviously, you want to make sure you're reading these type of definitions. Okay, so another piece to this is, you know, are all insurance policies the same? Now, what I can tell you is absolutely not. There are major differences between one policy to another. All right, again, I feel like the auto industry really destroyed the insurance industry because you know we see all those commercials about you know 15 minutes will save you 15 percent and all that stuff so it's all about dollar savings and savings and savings right and i understand everyone needs to be cost efficient with with things but there are certain items in life and in business that you definitely not do not want to skimp out on in terms of just saving a few dollars and I can tell you malpractice in my professional opinion is one of those reasons, is one of those that you do not want to skimp out on. And I point that out because again, I've seen a lot of situations where law firms are stuck in a hairy situation with a claim that was filed to the carrier and the carriers, you know, giving them a hard time, et cetera, et cetera. So what I want to go through here is a few of these items that you may or may not be familiar with. So the first one I want to point out is there are different deductible options within a policy. The default deductible option is what's known as a per claim. So 
What that basically means is each time there's a claim filed within your policy period year, so again, they're annual policies, each time there's a claim filed, you pay that deductible as long as it's actually being defended. The money actually has to be spent. But let's say you have a $5,000 deductible per claim. So if there's two claims filed within your policy year, you're paying $10,000 out of pocket, right? $5,000 each. So that's something to keep in mind versus on the flip side, an aggregate deductible. An aggregate deductible is exactly that, right? So the same example applies. Let's say you have two claims in one year, but if you have a $5,000 aggregate deductible, you're only paying that $5,000 once. So that's a nice option to have within a policy. Like I said, though, per claim is the default deductible option that a lot of carriers provide. Next one, kind of a little bit similar, claims expenses outside the limit, excuse me, outside the limit versus inside the limits. So let me start again. The default type of expense allowances is what's known as inside the limit. What that means is if you have a million dollar policy limit, and there's defense costs, the defense costs will erode your limit of liability. So for example, million dollar limit policy, okay, $200,000 of defense costs apply to a claim that's filed. Now that means that you have $800,000 left to pay an incurred loss on that specific claim. All right, so very, very important to know that. Versus outside the limits, which ironically, a lot of firms and attorneys feel like outside means that they're not covering it. That's not true. It's, it's, they're still covering it, but what happens is that same example for outside of limits, the defense cost does not erode the limit of liability. So again, $1 million policy limit, $200,000 of defense costs spent, for outside of limits, you would have a full $1 million left to pay any incurred loss on that claim if you were to lose, okay? So again, you can see the differences between the two are, are uh, large, big, big, big difference. And you do pay for more, you pay more for the outside of limits because obviously that is a better of the two options. However, I will say that is not always readily available to every law firm. From a carrier because what a carrier is looking for is they want to make sure if they're providing outside of limits the better of the two there's a couple of things that they look for and that's specific to um you know claims free certain areas of practice that they find favorable things of that sort to be able to provide that type of coverage okay the next component here that's very, very large, and I put this on here as, you know, with a couple stars, consent to settle provision. This is the most overlooked language within a malpractice policy that I can, that I've seen. Let's put it that way. So what happens is these consent to settle provisions, what the, a lot of policy, excuse me, a lot of carriers do is, they put it at the, the end of the first page and the language bleeds into the second page because they know that the attorney who's reading it or looking it over, unfortunately, is not going to read the second page, right? That's literally the, the logic behind this. So what a consent to, set, to settle provision 
basically means is, and again, it's language within a policy. What this is stating is you have a policy limit, okay? And this is with regards to, you know, accepting a settlement from the carrier. So for example, if you have a million dollar policy limit and there's a claim filed against the firm, what happens is the carrier starts working and defending the claim and then they come to a settlement offer for the firm and they come to you and they say, okay, um, you know, we can settle this, this claim for $200,000. All right. Now in the language and all these language, uh, all these policies, the language states, they need your consent to settle. Right. So they need you to sign off on that. So they give you this offer. But what happens is when you have this type of provision within the language, it's called a hammer clause. When you have this type of language, it now allows the carrier to cap the limits at that settlement offer. So it's giving them the power to cap your limits. So for that example, if they come to you with a $200,000 settlement offer and you say, no, I want you to continue to defend because I think this is a, a frivolous claim. I don't want this, you know, I don't want reputational harm to, sh to show that I accepted guilt and settled this claim. They'll say, okay, we'll continue to defend the claim for you. However, we're now throwing down this hammer clause and we're capping it at $200,000. So we'll continue to defend anything that goes over that $200,000. You now, the law firm, are on the hook for the difference. So if it ends up being a $300,000 claim paid out defense costs, you're, you end up as the firm paying out $100,000. Okay, very, very, very important language to understand within a policy. Like I said, a lot of firms skip over this component. Um, I'm not sure exactly why, but you know, we at USI, what we've done on policies and through our program with the Boston Bar is we've removed that language. And what it simply states is we need your consent to settle. Okay, so what that language is basically saying is that is not allowing the carrier now to cap your settlement offer, or, or excuse me, cap your uh, limits for the settlement that they offered. All right, makes a big, big difference. And a lot of the times I get a question, you know, does this happen often? I can tell you that it doesn't happen a lot of the times, but it does definitely happen. And when it does, it's devastating. It's devastating for the firm because it ends up being a fight between them and the carrier. And what happens is, again, it's in the language. So the firm ends up most of the time losing those situations um, or they're just forced into settling an offer and a claim that they never wanted to in the first place, right? They're strong armed into that situation. So again, very, very important language within the policy. You know, hopefully at the end of this, uh, at the end of this presentation, you'll take a look at that. Obviously you can ask me questions with regards to it as well. As I mentioned earlier, you know, our, uh, with regards to policies being the same, you know, something to take a look at definition of professional services, which we briefly went over uh, exclusions. That's important, like I said, especially with regards to fee suit exclusions. And then here's another big component to a policy. So there are coverages within a policy that are known as supplemental coverages. 
And what these are, are their additional coverages built into a policy that do not apply to your deductible and they do not take a hit on your limits. They're literally, they're almost, they're sub limits within the policy, they're extra coverages. Now, I give a lot of these seminars, most of the time I, I give it to a live audience, so this is a little different, but um, I give a lot of these presentations and what I can tell you is, and I tell every, every attendee is, when you're looking at policies, right, there's a lot to look at that I mentioned, but one of the big components to take a look at is your supplemental coverages within a, within a carrier. My, in my professional experience and opinion, if a carrier is willing to offer more supplemental coverages than the next carrier, most of the time that means that that carrier offering the most is the better of the two options. And I say that confidently because some of these coverages may not apply to your firm, right? You may never use them. Hopefully you never do. But the ones that have all of these additional coverages built in are the ones that really have the experience within this industry. They're willing to provide those coverages because they know that they're important to a firm. They know the ins and outs of this, this industry. Um, you know, things of that sort that really separate one carrier from the other. Because I can tell you there are carriers out there that are really a lot more price-driven and they strip a lot of the language out and that's what you're paying, right? You're paying less for the, the, um, the less coverage. So let me run through a couple of these. The first one built into policies is what's known as disciplinary proceedings, you know, kind of self-explanatory, but this is basically if there's a disciplinary made against an attorney within the firm, there's defense costs that could be applied. Usually within a policy, it's about $25,000. So you have $25,000 to spend to defend uh, to hire and defend a, a disciplinary matter for an attorney within your firm. So a nice option there. Subpoena coverage, all right? Now we all know what a subpoena is, but what happens is if you are at a, as a firm subpoenaed for whatever reason for another case, um, you know, that takes time and energy to, to review and, and go through what documents need to be sent and what have you. So, you literally, in a certain policies, you have subpoena coverage, which will literally provide you with what's known as a subpoena expert to go through any questions that you have and to eliminate a lot of those, um, a lot of the work that you have to put in to reviewing and handling a subpoena. All right, so another nice component. A lot of the times that's up to a full policy limit, but I can tell you, you'll never even use close to that you know, less than $10,000 or even $20,000 should do the trick for regards to that. The next one, loss of earnings. This is really important to a small firm, really a solo practice. Uh, what that means is if there's a claim filed against you, the, the law firm, and you have to go to court, the carrier will actually reimburse you for lost revenue while you had to go to court for that claim. Typically it's up to $500 a day, which is not a ton of money. But nonetheless, it's, a, it's, it's money that gets paid back to you for you know, not being able to have billable hours being in the office working with clients. The last one here is network risk coverage. I put a star next to it because this is really your cyber coverage. Um, you know, we get a lot of questions around this. This language has been added to policies in recent years. What I can tell you is, you know, it's nice that 
the language is added to policies, but I can tell you if you actually read the language for a cyber coverage, cyber supplement coverage within your professional liability policy, you'll see that it's very watered down language and it's watered down amounts of coverage. So what I mean by that is basically, again, your professional liability policy is covering you for legal services that you're providing. All right, it's not, it's not covering you for cyber attacks. So my, my concern here is these carriers are adding on this cyber coverage, but what happens if you, know, you the attorney, or an employee within your firm at their lunch break is you know, checking their email or, or going on the internet, what have you, on your network, and they click on something that now gave access to a, a cyber attacker to your network? You know, is that going to be covered under your professional liability policy? Absolutely not, because at the time you're not providing legal services, right? So there's a lot of a lot of gray area with regards to this coverage built in. In my opinion, I feel like a lot of times these carriers added this coverage into a professional liability policy so that they can almost exclude it or only pay up to a certain amount, because a lot of times this cyber the cyber supplement coverage is is minimal. It's usually ten to twenty five thousand. I've seen fifty thousand dollars in a policy once, but again, I rare. I, I would. It's highly unlikely that the carrier is going to uh, apply that. Also, we advise our clients if you're really nervous about cyber attacks, you should look at a standalone cyber policy. They're very inexpensive at this time. You know, you can get a full million dollars for about a thousand dollars in coverage, and it covers cyber attacks from A to Z. All right. And I built, I did put a slide in here. You know, if you are looking to learn more about cyber insurance, I'm actually hosting a webinar again with the Boston Bar Association. It's on Monday, May 4th. It's at one o'clock. And, you know, I, I wrote down here, you'll learn about data breach risks, exposures, steps you can ensure yourself proper coverage. I'll go through some claim statistics. I'll talk about the effects that COVID-19 has um, and has had on cyber breaches with everybody working from home, all of that good stuff. There's a lot of, of um, components to cyber coverage. So again, you know, that's, that's on Monday, May 4th. Please sign up through the BBA website um, to register and let us know if there's any questions with regards to that also. So let me, uh, let me, let me continue here. Let me just double check to see if there's any questions, no questions at this time. So that's, that's good. Um, so either I'm doing an excellent job or uh, people are barely listening. <laughs> um, all right. So common exclusions. So, Again, nothing, nothing uh, should jump out to you here. You know, intentional acts, you know, bodily injury, property damage, that's gonna be covered under your general liability or your BOP. You know, that's not covered under a professional liability. And then, you know, actually, obviously it's excluded. Here's an interesting one, insured versus insured. So that's not covered, but there is a, a component to that unless attorney-client relationship exists and professional services are being rendered, okay? Now, I wouldn't advise this, but that is an example of a scenario that there would be coverage applied. The example there would be a two-attorney firm, a partnership, 
where one of the attorneys is going through a divorce and hires his, his partner within that same firm to handle that divorce. Again, would not advise that because obviously that could be a conflict of interest, but that would not, in that example, that would not be excluded within a policy. The other component um, that I see a lot that we get questions around on is owned equity, right? You have ownership in a client, which is okay, but what will happen is it can't be any higher than typically 10 or 15% within a policy. Again, if this is important to you, you want to take a look at your exclusions. The highest I've ever seen is 20%, and that was years ago. So not even sure if that even exists anymore, but that's that's um, important. What tends to happen if you're in a larger firm, you know, 50 plus attorneys or such, and there's an attorney within the firm that has large ownership in a client, um, what we're able to do a lot of times in a policy is we're able to carve out language that basically says it, it takes this exclusion out as long as that attorney who has ownership in that client is not working on behalf of that client, right? So we're able to do that from time to time, but usually on some of the larger, larger firms. All right, looks like this froze for a second. Okay, um, this is a, an important slide, right? Because we get, we get a lot of questions with regards to this as well reporting a claim. I'm not going to spend a lot of, of time. I'm not going to read through this, but, um, you know, reporting a claim, you know, obviously one of the big components here is, you know, if there's a demand for money, right? Um, if there's ever a situation where you become concerned about a potential claim, you always want to report it to your carrier or discuss it with your broker. Um, a lot of times carriers have, you um, they have anonymous hotlines that you can work through a situation that let's say a client leaves your office, you know, screaming, yelling, I'm going to, I'm going to sue you. Um, you know, and they'll work through how to prepare yourself accordingly with regards to that. If there ever does become a lawsuit that comes from that. Um, but you'll see here, you know, again, reporting a claim, it's pretty straightforward. The most important component is, you know, they leave, um, in these policies, what they do is there's no specific timeline, right? They basically say, you know, within a reasonable amount of time, um, because the, the State Department of Insurance, they would never allow a carrier to say, you only have five days to report a claim, you know? So this is come, becomes extra important on, I have it here in the next slide, becomes extra important when you are ever switching carriers Right again, it, you can, you are absolutely able to switch carriers. But one of the concerns is if you have prior knowledge of a potential claim, you either want to make sure you're app, you're reporting that to your current carrier, or you're making it well known to the the new carrier that there is a potential prior uh, um, potential claim. Excuse me. So because what happens is if you do not make that known, and the new carrier finds out that you did. Know, potentially know about it, then that's where problems lie and they could try to exclude the coverage at that point. All right. So that's in a nutshell, kind of what this slide uh, infers. So, you know, that that's the most important component. Again, you know, we are, we're open to care, excuse me, we're open to law firms changing carriers, but what we tend to tell our clients is 
you want to stay as consistent with a carrier as long as you can build that relationship with them. But again, we understand that, you know, if there is a better option out there or better pricing, we absolutely look at that. But, but these are one of the main concerns is a prior, prior knowledge of a potential claim. All right, we wanna make sure that we have that handled before switching any type of policies. So when you're first obtaining coverage or even, you know, I worked with a lot of firms that have been in existence for some time and, you know, I learned that they probably do not have the appropriate coverage. So these are a few things that we look at with spe uh, in specific to a law firm. You know, we'll go through, we can compare coverages that, you know, other law firms like yourselves have, we call it benchmarking. So we benchmark your law firm against other clients of ours. So that's something that we have the capability of doing, but you know, these are things that we look at, right? Obviously dollar value of transactions or cases you work on, you know, if you're working on million dollar cases and you know better than anyone else, what those potential claims could, could look like, right? We want to make sure we have the appropriate coverage for you there. Again, cost of defending a claim. Um, typically on a small firm, I can tell you the cost of defending a claim ranges from about 50 to $80,000 um, in the cases that we typically see, like I said, on the studies that I, I review. So, you know, you again, they charge no less than, than you yourself, these, these, um, um, uh, excuse me, the, the, the uh, defense attorneys. Um, you know, they charge no less than, than their counterparts. So, um, you know, those costs do add up and sometimes they add up pretty quickly. And then again, one of the biggest components to buying insurance in the first place is to protect the assets that you have, right? Your house, the money, you know, kind of goes with that picture below. You know, those are the, the assets that you have financially that you want to protect. You want to make sure that you're covered appropriately for any of those large lawsuits that could come and could arise and would be covered under this, this policy. And then potential, potential billable hours lost. Um, that I would say is not as important as the first three, but that's something that obviously we review as well to you know, see what's important for a firm. I can tell you on a small, small firms, you know, one to three attorney firms, most of the time a million dollars is appropriate. Um, I can tell you again, uh, a lot of times firms want to see a lower cost. You know, they want to say, well, let's, I want to see the pricing between 500,000 and a million. I can tell you it's not half the cost. So most of the time it's always better to go with the higher of the two options because it's, again, like I said, it's not from 500,000 to a million. It's not double in terms of cost it's usually um, within 10% higher. So a lot of times it makes a lot more sense. Again, though, if you're a small firm and you're handling large transactional values or estate work, or you're mandated by a client or maybe a bank to have a certain amount of coverage, then obviously we review that as well. And we, we build the appropriate coverage for you on behalf of that also. Uh, another big question that we tend to get is what causes premiums to be so high, right? This is very, very important to everybody. So as I mentioned before, step rating, don't need to go through that too much again. But again, when you start a practice, it's the least expensive of your first year, increases incrementally the first five years. If you are to hire an attorney, 
it's rated off of attorney count plus many other things, but attorney count is one of the big components. So anytime you hire an attorney, there's obviously going to be an added cost associated with that. And they themselves as an individual go through a step rating also to become, to get to that mature rate. Area practice has a big piece to this. As you saw, the, under, the carriers are reviewing those statistics that they have based on those claims and those charts I sent you earlier. So a real estate attorney is gonna be paying a lot more than your criminal defense attorney, right? A family law practice is gonna be paying more than um, typically probably more than like a bankruptcy attorney, depending on the situation. Um, personal injury tends to pay more the plaintiff side tends to pay more than majority of law firms out there. Again, that kind of goes to a lot of different components to that in terms of case values, but you know they're the high, they're usually the highest in terms of um, claim frequency. Geographic location that's not so specific anymore. Um, carriers really look more specifically to the state. They used to do city and suburb ratings, but it's usually more now on the state stateside. As turning to staff ratios, that's only important to, um, if it's really out of whack or like collection firms, you know, if it's one attorney and 20, 20 staff members, you know, what, what's going on there? Because um, the concern there is, is there documents and, and docu uh, excuse me, signed documentation and, and is everything being reviewed by that one attorney? Or is it kind of, is there so much work being done by the other 20 staff members and the attorney's just signing off, not really reviewing anything, right? That's problematic. So they they look at that and it's an increased higher rate. Retainer agreements, this really, um, this is kind of, this makes your premium go down, right? So if you're using all these, the engagement letters from the beginning, disengagement letters, um, you know, at the end, and then no engagement letter, Letting that that client that came, or excuse me, that that individual that came in looking for an attorney, you know, a lot of times we tell our clients to use the no engagement letters to let it be known that you know what we what we discussed, you know, I am not your there is no attorney client relationship. I'm not your attorney. That prevents lawsuits. So if you're using all these agreements, that is um, favorable in the eyes of a carrier. Docket systems again. This is conflict checks. You know, what are you doing to, to check for conflicts? And then fee suits, right? This has come up a few different times. Obviously, you're kind of getting to the point where you're realizing that's 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 fearful in the eyes of a of a carrier. So fee suits is a, is problematic. You know, we we want to either see none of them or less than two a year. If that, um, you know, if not. Then there's usually questions that come out of it or they they increase your rates based on that because they know again the statistics behind counterclaims from fee suits all right and basically at this point um i only have these two slides so i'll just run through these real quick and i'll double check if there's any questions if there aren't i will obviously um, put my contact information so everybody can reach out to me but let me just run through these real quick Insurance application, we can kind of skip through this, but you know, it just ask generic information with regards to a firm. If you're starting a practice, you're gonna review it a lot different than existing on the application. And then, um, you know, what should you look for when you're looking to select a, a carrier? 
So as I mentioned before, you want to look at their experience. You know, you want to make sure that they've been in this, this, this type of practice for some time because we've unfortunately have seen a lot of carriers come in, try to, to gobble up some of the market share. And then, you know, they're not writing the risk appropriately. They're getting hit with claims and then they pull out of the market. So that leaves a lot of law firms with non-renewal letters. They're in a tough situation. They have to explain why they got non-renewed. Um, you know, and then they're trying to find new coverage. They have to find a carrier that's going to pick up prior acts. It's really a pain. Um, you know, so you want to make sure that the firm, excuse me, yeah, the firm is with a, a carrier who has a lot of experience with regards to it. And best rating, if you look at that, that's your financial ratings for a carrier, right? So you want to work with a carrier that is A-rated or higher. So A-rated is excellent. A-plus is excellent. Um, and then there's one carrier out there. It's A-plus-plus. They're A-plus-plus because they're backed by Berkshire Hathaway. So again, that's not the end-all be-all because a lot of it has to do with other components. But um, again, that's very, very important because financial stability is important, right? You don't want them to be hit um, and have to pull out of the marketplace. Claims handling, you know, can't emphasize that enough, right? Um, a lot of firms that have gone through a claim, they're the firms that really look at coverage a lot more in depth than others. Because again, like anything else, if you've never dealt with anything, especially anything drastic, you don't tend to look into it as deep. But, you know, claims handling, that's very, very important. Um, you know, you can probably see that, on, especially on your auto carriers. You know, that's one of the big components difference-wise. Big component here too, right? Defense counsels that they use, how they handle a claim, are they giving you the runaround? Very, very important. Again, like I just mentioned, panel counsel. Um, distribution, you know, you want to make sure a carrier is distributing their, their assets, right, to, to have returns. Um, so kind of a mixed bag there, but what I mean by that is, you know, you want to make sure a carrier is not just doing malpractice insurance, right? They're also doing general liability. They're also doing property, you know, things of that sort, where other lines of business have a, a lot more higher margin of profitability. So that's where a lot of times they're able to provide better uh, rates and things like that, and just the distribution, because if they're hit with major claims within one area, if they're just handling malpractice insurance and there's a bad year of malpractice claims, what's gonna to tend to happen is that carrier is either gonna take massive rates or they're gonna pull out of the marketplace. Whereas, you know, on the flip side, if they're distributed accordingly across the board with different types of, of, of insurance lines, it mitigates that, that exposure and then risk management services, right? What are they doing to help you, you know, to protect yourself from preventing claims? You know, do they have a website of information, that claims hotline that I mentioned? Are they providing CLEs? Um, most of the time that's going through your, your bar association and then, you know, email and newsletters. All right, and that, that goes for brokers as well. You wanna make sure that they're providing that type of stuff also. All right, so it's been a little bit over an hour. Um, so I appreciate, again, everybody's time. Hopefully this was very informative to everyone. And I went through, you know, what you were expecting and more. If you do have any questions, please, please, please feel free to reach out to me. That's my email address there and my direct phone line. That's my office line, but it's going to my uh, cell phone. 
um, as I'm working from remotely from home as everybody else is at this point in time. So I'd be more than happy to provide answers or questions, um, or excuse me, answers to questions that anybody poses. And with that, I thank you.